last week in the first part of this series on witnessing to people. Uh, the specific focus last week was on who, the who of witnessing, um, and that is who needs to witness. Uh, and I believe that I put forward a, a solid case that the Bible's position is that witnessing is not the sole responsibility of quote-unquote full-time ministers. It is the responsibility of all Christians to witness. Uh, and I covered uh, who needs to be witnessed to, and that is to the lost. Uh, and we are to preach the gospel to every creature. And here in the Bible Belt, we are not to make assumptions about who is saved and who is lost based on their appearance or even where we know they go to church. There is a significant proportion and percentage of church-going people in the Bible Belt who are not born again. And because of that, we need to make the assumption that everyone is lost until they can prove that they're not. Uh, and so we witness to everybody. And then we covered, uh, last week I covered who we are to witness about. And that is, whilst that sounds very, very simple and very obvious, well, we witness about Jesus. Well, that's what we should be doing, but there is a danger sometimes and there is a tendency, uh, rather than witness about Jesus, uh, sometimes the tendency is to talk about uh, our church or our denomination or quote-unquote what we believe. Nobody needs to know what you believe. Nobody needs to know what you believe. They need to know what God said. That's what they need to know. And that's what we are to witness to. Uh, and I talked uh, a, a lot last week, uh, and we'll continue to talk about uh, this tonight as well to a certain extent, and that is uh, having a burden to witness, a burden for the lost. Uh, and I believe based on um, the, the response and based on uh, how you people responded to the preaching last week, that you, we have many people here who have a concern for the eternal, and that's an important consideration, that people are not just souls, they are eternal souls. And the consequences of them dying without Jesus is a very, very severe thing. People sometimes, one of the accusations against God and against Christianity, they say, how can a God of love judge people forever? And what they don't realize is that sin is a sin against God. And because God is forever himself, unless payment for sin is made, unless propitiation, that's a great word, isn't it? Propitiation is the payment required to satisfy the wrath of the offended. If people don't receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior then not only is their sin continuing to offend God for eternity, and thus they should be judged for eternity, but worse than that and more important than that, their opportunity to receive God's Son as Savior, God doesn't forget that. And because of that, eternal punishment is actually just. It is not unjust at all of God. And if hell is forever then the business of witnessing to souls is a very, very serious business. Can I tell you with all honesty, if you get the right burden for souls, 
it borderlines on being overwhelming. Can I tell you as a grown 50-year-old man who likes to be as tough and sort of stoic as anyone likes to be, can I tell you that there was a time this week when I was driving my car where I was glad that my wife wasn't with me and my children weren't with me. You say, why were you glad they weren't in the car? Well, it was quiet to start with. Um, no, I'm just just joking. We've got to have a little lightheartedness every now and then. Uh, I was glad because no one likes to, you know, get tearful around people. And I was praying for certain people that are lost, that I know are lost. And the burden for them brought tears to my eyes. It should to all of you. Because hell is a long time to be wrong. And so tonight I want to begin on this question of, of how... And uh, how to witness, and I don't mean the actual mechanics of witnessing to people. And you'll understand what I mean in just a moment. Before, but before we even read the scriptures here in Jude and get into it, let's uh, pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask this evening, Lord, that you will help your people tonight. Lord, I believe that you did last week. And Lord, I pray that as we continue uh, this series on witnessing, Lord, may it be about you that they may, that your people may desire to glorify you, but Lord, may they also help to uh, be a witness to others so that people might be saved and more glory would be brought to you than that through anything else. Lord, we ask for your blessing on the preaching time now in Jesus' name. Amen. The question of how, how should we witness? The book of Jude, uh, which is known as uh, in some, some people call the book of Jude the Acts of the Apostates. Uh, the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, and the book of Jude is called the Acts of the Apostates. It's written in reference to the last times very specifically. It talks about Enoch. It, it's so interesting the way the Bible is laid out that God said, I'm a God who tells the end from the beginning. And so God talks about some things that were occurring during the days of Enoch, uh, and likens that to how things are towards the end of the world, I believe that we are very, very close, not so much to the end of the world. You say, when's the end of the world? I would say at least 1,007 years from now. Okay? So when we say we're coming close to the end, what I mean by that is we're coming close to the time of the Lord's return, which then leads into a seven-year tribulation. Not three and a half, seven. Okay? We got independent Baptists, we got King James Bible believing, fundamentalist, right wing, ultra conservative, usually conspiracy theorist, uh, independent Baptists saying that the tribulation might only be three and a half years. They ought to go back and study the Bible that for uh, hundreds of years we've all understood that the tribulation was seven years. That's a faith you don't need to depart from. It's Daniel's 70th week, not Daniel's 69 and a half week. Just in case you're wondering. Uh, and so after that seven year period of time, the time of Jacob's trouble, um, then there is a 1,000 year rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. And it's going to be glorious. You say, oh, is he going to rule all nations with a feather duster? No, he's going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. You say, oh, that sounds terrible. It will be wonderful. 
So it's at least a thousand and seven years away before we get to the end of the world. But the Lord's return is very near. And so what we're reading here uh, applies to you and I tonight. Let's start at verse 20. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Uh, And that looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ is not talking about salvation. It's talking to people that are already saved. That looking is looking for the Lord's return. One of the most merciful things that God could do right now is his return and get us out of here. That's mercy. If he were to come very, very soon, that'd be a merciful, merciful thing for him to do. And verse 22 says, And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. I say tonight how we should witness, and I say that we should witness with compassion. And I cannot underemphasize this, we should witness with compassion. I have seen before, I have seen Christians who witness to the lost almost with disgust and with anger about what sinners they are. That's a very sad approach to take to witnessing. Because you can look with disgust at some of the people in this world today, but if you don't pay attention to what the Bible says, Paul said, but for the, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And but for the grace of God, you or I could be every bit as bad as the lowest person we've ever seen. We must witness with compassion. Now, a lot of people don't even understand what compassion is. A lot of people think it's sympathy. But if you think about sympathy, there is a tendency and sympathy of condescending and looking down towards, oh, look at that. That's not what compassion is. Webster said that compassion is a suffering with another. He said it is, now he does say it's sympathy, but he said it is painful sympathy. It's a sensation of sorrow excited by the distress or misfortunes of another. Pity, commiseration, compassion is a mixed passion compounded of love and sorrow. Love and sorrow. That's how we ought to witness to the lost. And there is a lack of compassion amongst God's people in the world today. Now, I know that the Bible says here in this passage that others save with fear. However, I think that the witnessing to put fear into people ought to be done with compassion. When we witness with compassion, we are not judgmental towards the lost. We are not condescending, but we are witnessing the very solemn understanding that but for the grace of God, there go I. We were once as lost as any other person that we witnessed to. Compassion, by the way, compassion is one of the chief emotions of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He truly was compassionate. Consider these verses. We won't go to all of the passages tonight, but I'll give you the references and read parts of the verses. uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 
It says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Moved with compassion on the multitudes. Matthew 14 verse 14 says, and Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. There were two blind men in Matthew chapter 20 verse 34. It says, so Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. I hope you're noticing something about Jesus. Not only does Jesus have compassion, but it says he's moved with compassion. Compassion ought to move you. It ought to make you do things. And of course, Jesus, because he had not just had the power of God, Jesus was the power of God. When he would do things, things would happen and people would be healed. We have a world today that needs to be healed from the effects of sin. Jesus saw a leper and in Mark chapter uh, 1 verse 41, and Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. Jesus put forth his hand. He reached out what kind of compassion would we have if we don't even reach out what do we call it when we go knock on people's doors what do we go and call it uh, uh, I, I always think of brother wb sharp as uh, he's like a pentecostal now he's not a pentecostal but he's like one because he's always got signs and wonders right um, brother wb he brings he brings the signs when you go to outreach what's outreach swap that word around reach out That's what we're supposed to be doing, is it not? And so Jesus would reach out. He put forth his hand and touched him. By the way, that's a leper. You know what Jesus did? He touched the man that no one else wanted anything to do with. You say, what what do you mean by that? I mean, that's who we're supposed to be looking for. The ones that society has rejected. We looked last week at the maniac of Gadara. Mark chapter 5 verse 19. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. The prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You know what compassion does? Well, according to the scripture there in the book of Jude, compassion makes a difference. Compassion makes a difference. The single greatest witnesser, or if you want to use the phrase, and we talked... Last week about this, I talked about you know the word soul winner and the phrase soul winner and how it's used in the Bible and how we use it today. But the single greatest witness, or if you want to call it a soul winner, I'm comfortable with that, that I ever knew was the missionary pastor in Australia that I trained under uh, for ministry. Uh, an interesting fun fact, he had written into the Constitution of the church. It's always a challenge for pastors. Um, there's, there's quite often, uh, uh, and I don't know if it's a problem here at Temple Baptist Church or not, but there's quite often in churches a, 
a problem with people that want to help and want to get involved in various ministries, and they're just not spiritually ready for it. And you know what he had written into the constitution of the church? No person shall be involved in ministry who is not a faithful, diligent, and regular public personal witness. You know why he had that written into the church's constitution? For a couple of reasons. One, because that's what you're supposed to do. And two, because he knew he could use that to cull out the riffraff. No, no, you want to teach a Sunday school class, but I have no evidence that you've ever been witnessing anyone. You take up witnessing for six months, 12 months, I'll keep an eye on you. You do that for a while and I'll think about giving you a Sunday school class. You know those people, they usually don't come back six or 12 months later to ask again because they don't want to take on the business of witnessing. Why should you give anything, why should you give any task, any responsibility, any place of honor, because places of service are a place of honor, why should you give that to someone that won't witness? Well, the... That man, the single greatest witnesser that I've ever known, was a tremendously compassionate witness. And if you asked him why he was like he was around unsaved people, he'll tell you exactly why. And his life story is a sad story. He grew up as a young boy in, uh, around in the Ozarks area of Missouri. And someone, I can't remember who, as the story went, but someone introduced him to whiskey when he was a 13-year-old boy. He said he drank whiskey every single day of his life, from the time he was a 13-year-old boy to the time he was 33 years old when he got saved. And when he got saved, he stopped drinking whiskey and never drank liquor again in his life. But he said that had made a, a, a bad, bad man out of him... And he said he never forgot where he came from. And so he witnessed everybody with compassion. People would ask him at the, at the shopping center, you know, the person scanning your goods. Boop, boop, boop. What do they say? How are you today? Boop, boop. He'd say, I'm better than I deserve. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? And he would tell him, he just straight off the bat. Well, I deserve hell. If you knew me before I met the Lord, I was a really bad man. I did this, I did that, and I really deserve to be in hell. But I got saved and I'm not going to hell and you don't need to either. He would witness to anyone, anywhere, under any circumstances. And I love that about him. He pastored a church in, in Australia and it was a church of middle to middle upper class society people. And when he became the pastor of a church, he starts bringing the riffraff from town to church. I mean, and I'll, I'll be honest, I was about a 16-year-old kid at that point, and he brought this one guy to church one day, and I looked at him and thought, we we're all going to get killed. <laughs> now, you can laugh, but this guy, this guy that he brought to church that day was less than a week out of prison for dealing high-grade and high quantities of heroin. <laughs> like, this guy could have killed us if he wanted to. You say, what's he bringing him to church for? Because the guy got saved. And he had compassion towards those people. His, uh, his office, his study, where he would read his Bible and prepare his sermons, it was like this pulpit. Here is, see how there's a center section that's tilted back at an angle here where I got my Bible sitting tonight? He had a little piece of wood there at his desk which was tilted back and that's where he would sit his Bible. And on that piece of wood, 
How many of you are familiar with not just Jack Chick's uh, uh, little tracts, gospel tracts, but some of Jack Chick's booklets? Some of those uh, booklets will have pictures of people falling off into hell and things like that. Well, John Wheat, his little place where his Bible would sit, he had a picture of one of those Chick booklets, and it just had the picture of all of these people falling into hell, and it had the verses in there from Ezekiel. How many of you know the verses in Ezekiel about the watchman? If the watchman doesn't blow the trumpet, and the Bible says, their blood will I require at his hands. And he had those verses down below where the pictures were of people falling into hell. So anytime his Bible wasn't open, if he was sitting at his office, he had a picture of people falling into hell. That'll change the way you think. And he thought the way that Christians ought to think. One of the most memorable sermons he ever preached. Uh, He preached a message one time uh, and Those of you who know me very well know I have a problem with severe memory loss and memory retention. It's not an excuse. I know some of them, I just forget everything. You're not genetically broken the way I'm genetically broken. My brain is messed up. How many of you can say, I agree with that, Smoker, your brain's messed up. (laughs) Um, But every now and then I can remember something. And I remember a few of the sermons that uh, my old pastor preached uh, in his life. And one of them was called Pity the Man. He preached a message on how we should have pity and compassion towards the lost. Now, my old pastor, when he was a drunk, growing up in the Ozarks of Missouri, like a lot of people in Missouri, they're all into their bluegrass music and everything like that, right? And so he was pretty handy on a a guitar. Matter of fact, he was very handy on a guitar. He was so handy on a guitar that they actually, he had an invite to go and sing at the Grand Old Opry. And he, he said to them, he said, I'll go up on stage at the Grand Old Opry on one condition. And they're like, what was, what is that? And he said, I've got to go up there drunk. He said, I'm way too nervous to go up there sober. And they said, you're not allowed to appear drunk on the Grand Old Opry. It's a wholesome family show. And so he said, well, I'll, and he didn't go on the Grand Old Opry. Um, now you say, why am I even pointing that out? Because when he, when he preached that message, pity the man, he pulled out his guitar and it was very, very rare he would pull out his guitar. You say, why is a guy who's good with a guitar hardly ever pull it out? Because for him, it was pretty hard to separate a guitar from the memories of all the years he spent drinking booze. And so instead he learned to play banjo, which I will resist the urge to tell banjo jokes so as to not offend any of the brethren. But he pulled out his guitar every now and then, only infrequently and only when he thought it was absolutely necessary for what he was preaching. And he preached that sermon called Pity the Man. Has any, anyone here heard that sort of country gospel type song by that same name, Pity the Man? I won't do your ears the damage of hearing me try and sing it. But here's the words of the song. It says, I guess we should pity the man in this world who must use the earth for a bit. And I guess we should pity the man who must toil from dawn to dusk for his bread. But these can be rich if they have contentment and sharing God's salvation plan. But if you know any who, though they have plenty, are lost, then pity that man. Pity the man who has treasures to hold and holds not the pearl of great price. Pity the man, though he lives long on earth, yet he knows not the giver of life. Doctor or lawyer, 
traveler or merchant, or builder who builds on the sand, pauper or king, to be saved is the thing. If he's lost, then pity the man. And I guess there are those who pity the saved, as though we were missing life's best. Oh, they're forgetting the treasures of earth pass away, and heaven is the place to invest. They're meanwhile esteeming the man who is scheming to hold all the wealth that he can. But if while he's living to God he's not giving his soul, then pity that man. Pauper or king, to be saved is the thing. If he's lost, then pity the man. And that's what we need to do. We need to get compassion towards the lost. When he preached that message, it changed how I looked at that people from that point forwards, even though prior to him preaching that message, I had already, quote-unquote, led numerous people to the Lord throughout my life. By the way, the passage in Jude, it says, of some having compassion making a difference. Um, How can we make a difference if we're just like the world? We can't. You can't make a difference until you are different yourself. And so once again, this simple scripture here exposes how wrong the contemporary Christian church movement is in their philosophy of being just like the world in order to reach the world. That doesn't make a difference. How are we to be different? Well, the text has the answer in Jude. It says we to build ourselves up on our most holy faith. There is a holy building phase of Christian life. And then it says keeping yourselves in the love of God. It is a continuous keeping phase. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. How many of you would be able to raise your hand tonight and say, I am staggered, I am stunned, I am concerned about the rate at which not just young people, but mature, established Christians are falling away from the faith. They're departing the fundamental Bible-believing, independent Baptist churches. They're falling for sin. They're falling for the world. They're falling for apostasy. They're turning to agnosticism. They're becoming atheists. Is Is it just me or are we seeing something that's absolutely shocking and stunning going on? We need to be keeping ourselves in our most holy faith and keeping ourselves in the love of God. By the way, that what we're seeing there that's very, very concerning, I'll tell you what's concerning about it. We're seeing people that you would never suspect of falling, falling in ways that you wouldn't suspect that they were going to fall. Is that is that the truth? Shocking, stunning things. You say, I never saw that was coming. Neither did a lot of people. And what's concerning is we look around and we're like, who next? Does the Bible have any answer to that? I think I may have stumbled across it recently and it's a message for another time. But if you say, oh, it's just so scary because there doesn't appear to be any hope or any way of preventing it. There actually is a biblical answer for that. If you want to know, come and see me after church. Because that's not tonight's message. We need to not only be building ourselves up and keeping ourselves in the love of God, but we ought to be looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an anticipating and looking forwards phase, looking forwards to the Lord's return. If you do those three things, if you build yourself up in your most holy faith, not just your faith, 
See, you have your faith the moment you get saved, but you build yourself up in your most holy faith. You build yourself up in holiness. If you do that, you'll be different. Holy people are different nowadays because most of the world is unholy. Uh, And you have compassion as well as a sense of urgency, which takes me to my next point, the sense of urgency. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. People will say, oh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the chapter where the Bible talks about who should get married, who shouldn't get married, how that we avoid fornication before we get married and all of that, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, how many, right? But if you look at the underlying theme of what 1 Corinthians chapter 7, those things, the marriage versus not getting married, who should be married, who should stay single all their life, all of those things are just side issues and they're symptoms of the much bigger picture. The actual purpose, the purpose of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is not to tell you who should and who shouldn't get married. The purpose of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says that he may attend upon the Lord without distraction. That's what it's, that's what it's there for, really. Uh, and so that's an important thing. That bre- brethren, the time is short. The time is short, it says there in 1 Corinthians 7. And we need to be doing the Lord's work without being distracted. I cannot remember the circumstances of who it was who relayed this story, but there was once a man who was out on the street and he was preaching out on the streets and an unsaved man came up to him and to talk to him about his preaching. And the unsaved man questioned him uh, quite intently and he said, do you really believe that there's a place called hell? And the street preacher said, yes, I do. And he said, do you really believe that it's fire and it's hot and it's literal? And the preacher said, yes, I do. And the unsaved man, he said, do you really believe that it is forever? And he said, yes, I do. And you know what that unsaved man said to him? He said, then how come the rest of your church don't come out here and preach this stuff? Why aren't there people out here 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And he said, why aren't you people more fired up about that stuff He said, because if I believe what you say you believe, I'd walk on my hands and knees through broken glass to get that message to the world. We need to have a sense of urgency. They're lost. And I know, you say, but you told us last week the purpose of witnessing wasn't about them, it was about glorifying the Lord. It is. But there's nothing more glorious than when a lost person gets saved. The angels in heaven stop to rejoice over one sinner that repenteth. One of our hymns says, rescue the perishing. It says, plead with them earnestly, plead with them gently. He will forgive if they only believe. Turn to Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8. When? When? We move on from how and now we get to the when question. When should I witness? Acts chapter 8. And verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. It's fascinating that the Lord took him away from a place of revival and told him to go somewhere else. And when the Lord told him to go somewhere else that day, a man gets saved. And if you study history now, you will know If you've studied history, you will know that when, quote-unquote, white man went to Ethiopia with the gospel, you know what he found? 
Ethiopia had already had the gospel. Now it had changed over the years. They hadn't been exactly true to the faith. And they had some strange doctrines in Ethiopia because they hadn't, didn't have a completed copy of the scriptures and anything like that. But they still had the basic principles of the faith was there in Ethiopia when quote unquote white man brought the gospel to them. You say, why? The Ethiopians were very open and honest about it. And they said, we've had this stuff since Acts chapter 8. Haven't you guys been paying attention? This man wasn't the only man that got saved as a result of Philip. He took the gospel back to his homeland. Look at verse number uh, sorry, 29, 29. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. First thing I would say about when you should witness, and this is super important, every single time the Holy Spirit tells you to witness, Look at verse 29 again. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. If Philip does not obey the Spirit at that point, does the Ethiopian eunuch get saved? No, he doesn't. And it changes the course of eternity for the Ethiopian eunuch, but potentially for hundreds of thousands of people within his own nation. You need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God when it comes to this issue of witnessing. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, talking about salvation, says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. How many times at church have we preachers preached that text? Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. We have an altar call at the end of preaching a gospel message, and we tell the lost, you need to come now. You need to come now. How many of you agree that the lost need to come when they hear the gospel? Well, if they need to come now, don't we need to go now as well? Now seems as good as any time. If not you, then who? And if not now, then when? If we have no sense of urgency, why should the lost? That's a valid question. On the 8th of October in 1871, D.L. Moody was preaching at Farwell Hall in Chicago. He preached on the text, What then shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? At the conclusion of his sermon, he gave no invitation, which by D.L. Moody's standards was a very unusual thing to do. Instead, he encouraged the congregation to go home and consider Jesus all week long and make their decision when they came back to the revival meeting the following week. That was the 8th of October, 1871. On the night of the 8th of October, 1871, what we now call the Great Fire of Chicago broke out. During that time, 17,500 buildings were burned. 73 miles of suburban streets were burned. 90,000 people in Chicago were left homeless. More than 300 Chicagoans died. The revival meeting was not resumed. The very building that he preached in, Farwell House, was burned to the ground. D.L. Moody regretted not giving an invitation that night. For the rest of his life, he regretted it. And he resolved to never again leave people without asking them to make a decision about Jesus. We need to have a sense of urgency. I'm going to ask a strange question now. When should we not witness? 
And if your heart isn't right with the Lord, your ears just pricked up, oh good, there's times where we don't have to. When should we not witness? And the first thing I'll say about that is on company time. If you are an employee, you are being paid not to witness. You're being paid to get a job done. And if you are getting paid to get a job done and you're witnessing instead of getting the job done, now if you can do those two things, whatever it is, your line of work, if you can do it while you're witnessing, that's good and well. But if you have to stop what you're doing to witness, or if you have to stop someone else to witness, and you're still getting paid to do it, that's easily solved with thou shalt not steal. That doesn't mean you shouldn't witness to the people you work with. Many of you know that I witnessed for an extended period of time, more than a year, to a guy I worked with at the company that I'm still employed by. And eventually that man got saved. I would pour hour after hour after hour of time and effort into witnessing to that man. After work, off the clock, in quote-unquote my own time. So if you get a chance to witness at work... you. You say, what do I do about that? Say, man, that's an awesome question you got. I'm glad you're interested in that. Could we schedule some time when we're not on the clock? And I would love to talk to you more about that. By the way, while we're here at work, we're, we're both in a hurry, right? Let's do this. This is more important than work, so let's leave it till later when we can concentrate. Don't witness on company time. Second thing I would say, beware of this one. If you're an adult, beware of witnessing to kids that aren't yours and certainly aren't in a church situation where there's a lot of people around. I had a guy in my church in Australia and I couldn't drum it through his head. He just wouldn't get it through his head. He was a public school bus driver and he'd get all the kids on the school bus and then tell them they're all going to hell if they don't get saved. Not surprisingly, the parents weren't happy when the kids went home with this message and not surprisingly, he lost his job. And didn't make life easy for my church in that town either. Well, you guys are the ones that tell the school kids they're all going to hell while you're driving. Like, use your brain. Seriously. Now, I'll give you another similar one. When not to witness. In a cross-gender, one-on-one situation. Now, you might say, well, hang on. What about Jesus With the woman at the well. And I will answer that. You're not Jesus and it won't end well. There we are. When else should we not witness? When someone makes it abundantly clear that they don't want your witness. I was out door knocking with a guy from my church in Australia one day and there was a man working under his car. I don't know, he might have been changing the oil or something like that in his car, but he was working underneath his car. And he was like, uh, and we knocked on his back gate because there was no one answering at the house and we saw there was someone out in the garage working and he's like, yeah, what do you want? And we went around and started trying to witness to him. And the guy started cussing at us. He's like, I don't want that stuff. And he gave plenty of words to describe how much he didn't want it. And this guy with me, he says, well, if that's your attitude, you're just going to go to hell. And this great big guy, he wasn't a little weedy guy underneath this car. He was a big one. 
he gets out from under his car and he's like, what did you just say? And I'm like, shut up, Anthony, shut up. And he goes, I'll tell you what I said. I'm not ashamed. You're going to hell and you got such a bad attitude about Jesus. This guy goes and grabs, you know, the big shop trolleys that you use, not the little handled uh, 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 lift up your car, the, the big one. He grabs the handle off of that thing and he starts walking towards us. He goes, I'm pretty sure this is my property. And if you don't get on my property, I'm going to... And I'm like, Anthony, we're going, we're going. He goes, but he's lost, he's lost. I'm like, yeah, and we're about to be dead. (laughs) Don't, don't do that. Okay? If you do that, I'll happily have some part in your funeral, whatever, but it'll be on you, not me. I warned you. Let them go if they make it abundantly obvious that they don't want you to witness. But you know what you can do? You say, I respect... Because that's one of the things they want. They want to be respected. So I respect that you don't want to talk to me about this. I hope you're okay with the fact that I'm going to continue to pray for you. That God would change your mind. And if he does, let me know when you're wanting to talk. Is that okay? I hope it is. When should we witness? John chapter 9 verse Uh, four, I'll read that verse just quickly. John chapter nine, verse four, Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. When you die, you don't get a chance to come back and witness again. Do it now. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 6, Jesus said about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, why stand ye here all the day idle? If you study the number 11 in the Bible, the number 11 seems to be linked uh, to God's last warning before judgment. God's last warnings often are associated with the number 11. And I believe that we live in the 11th hour, uh, so to speak, before the Lord's return right now. We need to be witnessing. Another thing I'll say to you as far as witnessing, uh, don't quit witnessing to a specific person after one or two attempts to witness to them. I've seen that before. Well, I told him once and I told him twice, I'm not going to tell him anymore because after all, Titus 3 chapter 10 says that a man that is a heretic after two or three uh, admonitions reject. And Titus chapter 3 verse 10 has absolutely zero to do with witnessing to a lost person. Nothing whatsoever. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition is not an unsaved person at all. It's a saved person and it's not even a saved person who disagrees with you over doctrine. That's not what a heretic is. A saved person is a person who looks for a doctrinal difference. Well, Brother Mitch, what do you believe about this passage of Scripture? Oh, that's interesting. That's different than Pastor Mitchell. And then you go and use that difference and say, well, you know, Brother Mitch, he believes differently than you do. And then you go, you know what? He believes one of you guys is a heretic. You guys need to slug it out. That's what a heretic is. It's someone who looks for a doctrinal difference and intentionally uses it to drive a wedge between brethren. If you study enough Bible and read enough Bible, none of us are going to agree on all of it. Don't go looking for those differences to drive wedges between people. It's got nothing to do with witnessing. You say, how many times you should, should I witness to an unsaved person and then they keep rejecting it? 
Well, I'll give you a not very doctrinal answer, but it's a biblical answer. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 4. Him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. There's still hope for them while they're alive. Keep witnessing to them. You say, what should I say? What should I say? Turn to Acts chapter 8 and we'll... Are we getting towards the end? We are. We're getting towards the end today. Isn't that good? Certain anonymous people, but I wouldn't want to call out Brother Beaver. I think that I preach too long and so I need to move quickly. <laughs> I say that because he's my friend. And some of you are all thinking, I don't want to be Smoker's friend if he does stuff like that. Um, what should I do? What should I say? How do I even witness to a lost person? Well, there's some, there's some great um, little principles here in Acts chapter 8. Let's start at verse 30. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said unto him, Understandest thou what thou readest? Do you even understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. You know what's the first thing you should do with an unsaved person? Find out where they're at. There are some unsaved people. You've got to understand this. America has changed a lot. I've lived here now for, I don't know, 12 or 13 years now. America's changed a lot in the 12 or 13 years I've lived here. I first visited here in November 2002. America's changed a whole lot in the last 21 years. There are a lot of people in this country today. You'd be surprised how many people there are in this country today, particularly young people. If you said to them, said, who is Jesus? They can't even tell you. That wasn't America 20 years ago. You need to find out where people are at. Some people know a lot. Some people know very little. Some people know a certain amount and what they know is actually fairly good, but they're not saved. Some people are way off base, but they think they know heaps. And so Philip here, he starts with the question, understandest thou what thou readest? You say, what am I saying? I'm saying that you cannot use, you cannot just use, Pastor Mitchell has said this before, you can't just go Romans Road, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you believe that? Uh, uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God is... Right, You can't just do that with everybody because not everyone's at the same place right now, are they? Find out where they're at, meet them where they're at. And you say, what do I do next? Look at verse 32. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before a sheep, so open he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth and the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speakest the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Okay? First thing you want to do with a, long, a lost person, find out where they're at. And then the second thing you want to do is as quick as you can, get to Jesus. Um, get them to Jesus as quick as you can. And then the next thing you want to do... Now, there are churches out there that will tell you, we went out witnessing on Saturday and 257 people got saved. How many of you are familiar that there are churches out there and they do that, and yet 257 people aren't newly joined to the church the following day? 
They're going one, two, three, pray after me, and they're basically doing a follow the bouncing ball routine, and 257 people aren't getting saved at all. Look at what Philip does. Verse 36, as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with, watch the, what's the next three words? All thine heart. Philip's not doing easy believism. He's saying, I'm looking for you to believe with all your heart. But I want you to notice something critically important. He's not doing one, two, three, pray after me. He's not doing follow the bouncing ball. He doesn't even tell the eunuch, here's what I want you to say. Because some people, if you tell them what you want them to say, they'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. They won't necessarily believe it. Philip throws out an open-ended question, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he leaves it open-ended and watch what the answer is. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And Philip's like, he's got it. He's figured it out. He didn't have to follow my bouncing ball. I witnessed to him. The spirit of God moved upon him and worked in his life. And so what I'm saying is you want to get people to make a true decision, but without compromise. If you lead with the answers, you'll get a lot of decisions, but you may not get a lot of conversions, and that will cause a lot of confusion. Stick with the Bible when you witness, and your personal testimony. You'll want to use both, the Bible and your testimony. Now, I have in my pocket here tonight something that will be a real help to you. And I'm not giving it to you, so it won't do you much help at all. But if you get one of these, this will be a help to you. This uh, old, it looks a little old, looks a little worn out, just like its owner. Um, this book is called um, The Treasure Path to Soul Winning. It is a tremendously helpful little booklet. It has in here a whole bunch of little assignments with Bible verses to learn to memorize. They're specifically, specifically chosen verses to help witnessing to a person that isn't saved. When people say, I don't know what to say, get one of these booklets, start studying this, start memorizing these verses, pretty soon you'll know what to say. It has assignments with five verses in it. It has 12 sections. 12 times 5 equals 60. You'll learn 60 Bible verses and you're one third of the way through the book. This tiny little booklet, has th- it's in three separate divisions. There are 180 verses of scripture in here. And if you make the time and effort and invest in this, you will know how to handle the common objections that people have. You will know how to make a clear presentation of the gospel to people. It's one of the greatest little booklets that you can have if you want to be an effective witness. It's available exclusively nowadays from Brother Ben Smoker for a cost of... no. It's on Amazon. Nearly everyone's got an Amazon account. It's $4.99. Okay? $4.99 is tremendously helpful. Uh, and and uh, I was talking just before church uh, to Pastor Mitchell. The church may actually organize to do a bulk order of those. So instead of getting them from $4.99 from Amazon, you can get them from $12.99 from Temple Baptist Church fairly soon. <laughs> 
Um, no, in, in all seriousness, if the church buys a group of them, it's a bunch of these things, it's only to make it easier for you. Buy it yourself if you want to get it yourself. No one's going to get their fender dented. I didn't get one from Temple Baptist Church because I just went straight on Amazon. Can you at least wait until the preaching's finished before you get on your Amazon account? Because I know how it works. You'll buy one of these for $4.99 and you'll have bought a new TV for $799 before I'm done preaching. That's how Amazon works. Um, but it'll be a help to you. Now, did you know that there is no answer for some people? You say, i got to have an answer to every question. No, you don't, because not every person wants the answers. It's just reality. There is no answer for some people. Don't worry about that. If you ever witness to a person who's being contentious, here's how you handle that. You say to that person and say, now if you've known them for a long time, say, I've known you for a long time. I've always known you to be an honest person. Are you an honest person? And they'll say, yes. Say, good. Since you're an honest person, I I would imagine that you would want to know what the Bible has to say about these matters, don't you? Because you're an honest person. Usually they'll back off and let you talk at that point because they don't want to look like they're dishonest. And just continue on with that. Ask good, biblical, thought-provoking questions. One of the greatest questions that you can ever ask. I did this when I used to work for the Australian government. I worked... um, How many of you understand that, you know, the government nowadays doesn't really like Christianity anymore? Right? How many of you understand if you do something dumb while you're, uh, while you're working, you could get yourself into a lot of trouble, you could even lose your job? I, when I was young and I had all this zeal, I I didn't care if I lost my job. One of my jobs on Thursdays was I, uh, I used to have to send out an email to everyone in the government agency I worked for. There were 27,000 people in that government agency. And I had to send them a job every Thursday morning to remind them that certain of the computer systems were going to be shut down on Thursday night because Thursday night was the night we did maintenance. And uh, my boss, who used to send those emails, he would send out fun. He would send out the email saying, you know, we're going to shut down this system and this system and this system tonight and I'll be back online tomorrow morning and... Then he would throw in some fun facts, like the weather on the weekend looks like this, and did you know that when the Apollo rocket went to blah, 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 and he'd put in some little fun fact. And people loved his emails because they were bored about the maintenance stuff, but they were always interested in his fun facts. Well, one day when I was sending out the email, you know what I put in in as the fun fact at the end of the email? Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And I clicked send on that and it went out to 27,000 people. And I thought, hey, if I still got a job tomorrow, it's going to be amazing. Uh, you say, what happened? One Jewish lady wrote back and she said she was highly offended and she was going to contact human resources and I was going to lose my job. Human resources never contacted me. About a dozen other people who were Christians wrote back and said, man, I appreciate that you wrote that. That took some guts, but that's exactly what we need. And the remaining of the 27,000 said nothing. But most of them read it. Ask thought-provoking, Bible-based questions. I'm nearly done. You say, how do I do it? Can I tell you there's no single quote-unquote right way to witness or wrong way to witness? You can certainly go about things the wrong way. there's only one gospel. There's one gospel, right? And just like David, King David, when he tried to put Saul's armor on, he found that Saul's armor didn't fit him, right? 
you don't have to try and fit into my armour and witness the way I do or anyone else. Find what works for you, but learn from others. And if you want to say, well, I don't know how to do this or I don't know how to do that, feel free to ask someone like myself. I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination, if you don't want to ask me, ask Pastor Mitchell, ask Brother Max, uh, ask Brother Terry. Where's Brother Terry? Is he even here? Don't ask him, he's not here. Uh, uh, ask Brother Service, he's here. Ask Brother WB. What? How could you possibly get a wrong answer from anyone with a moustache as good as WB's stash? I, I, ask the man. You say, how do you witness and how do you do this? There's nothing wrong with learning from someone else, right? But let's get out there and try and be a witness. Someone once said this. There are many techniques, and this is the last thing I'll say tonight, and then I'll ask Pastor Mitchell to come and close the service. There are many techniques that can lead to success, but none of them work if you don't. None of them work if you don't. And I'll ask Pastor Mitchell to come at this time. That same preacher that I was talking about before, John Wheat, the missionary who came to Australia, he used to hand out gospel tracts everywhere. He would go out on the streets and he would witness and preach on the streets. And he would knock on people's doors to witness to people and it upset some of the people in the church. And uh, one of the men in the church, his wife got so upset, this lady came up to him one day during a church business meeting, no less, and she said, I don't like your American methods of witnessing. And you know what he said to her? He said, I'm open to suggestions. What are your Australian methods of witnessing? And she had nothing to say. And you know what he said? He said, I like the way I'm doing it better than the way you're not. And that was the end of the story. Let's just try and do something and be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.